How many of you have heard of a chiasm? Okay. So, uh, if you haven't heard that word, it's from the Greek letter key, which looks a lot like an X. And so, this particular passage that we are looking at tonight does sort of a ascending and descending development, a progression. And um, the downside of using this idea of a chiasm is that if you see it in one spot, sometimes you want to start seeing it everywhere, and it's not everywhere in the Bible, but there are, there are some places where it seems to be fairly evident. And actually, what we're looking at tonight is the second half of the one that we looked at last week. So, look at verse 10 and then at verse 7 and see what the connection is between those two verses. There's a word that links them. Say what it is. I'm sorry, verse 10 of chapter 5, to clarify. I may have confused you there. Verse 10 of chapter 5, verse 7 of chapter 6. Yeah, go ahead. Satisfied, okay? Specifically, it says, is not satisfied. So we see that in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied. Verse 7, the appetite is not satisfied. Look at chapter 5 and verse 13. And chapter 6 and verse 1. What's the repeated idea between those two verses? 5, 13, 6, 1. Okay, there's an evil, okay? Verse 13, it's a grievous evil. Verse 6, there's a prevalent evil, okay? So, uh, we have in this progression, not satisfied, grievous evil, and then we have the, the main point of it, which we'll get to in just a second, evil, not satisfied. So that's sort of the building and then the going back down. So, if that's the thing that we're building up to, not satisfied evil, then it's going to say that there's something that's good. Where do we find that in chapter 5? What verse or verses do we see that in in chapter 5? Okay, verse 18 is the first verse. And how far does it go down to? If, if evil is our word that's like the marker for the next idea, in 6 and verse 1, it would be 18 through, 18 through 20. Good. So, not satisfied, grievous evil, there is a good that I have seen, evil, not satisfied, conclusion. So that's how this passage progresses. We obviously took the first half of it last week, and um, I like that passage so well, I actually repeated the title in the bulletin by accident. So last week was the idea that we should not be greedy, 
and we should not be stingy, but we should be diligent, and along with that, to enjoy the blessings of God. This week, we should recognize that it is possible for us to be neither greedy nor stingy, and yet to possess things, but not be able to enjoy them, to have family, but not to have a proper burial, to have long life and not to enjoy that long life. And so let's look through that progression tonight. So he starts out, he says, There's an evil, chapter 6 and verse 1, which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. So think about what this might have looked like in the life of the Israelites. Um, if you had everything that you wanted, everything that you desired, and then you were not able to, in fact, enjoy it. And when we see the idea of foreigner, it's not just like the sort of... Um, it's not just the sort of suspicion that sometimes we have in America toward other countries. It's not that sort of idea of a foreigner. It's, it's basically, I think the thing he's emphasizing is, what would have been true about a foreigner compared to an Israelite as far as his religious practice? What, what's that? Okay. So he's not following the true God, which would mean that he was practicing idolatry, okay? So think about this. I follow God. God has blessed me with all these material things. And then this idolater comes in and enjoys all these things that I've worked hard for. You see the, the, the futility, the frustration, the anguish that Solomon is describing. Do we see any examples of this in the Bible? What's that? Okay. Yeah, and maybe not a foreigner per se, but definitely Jacob usurped and took away from his brother what was owed to him. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah. Um, think about the book of Judges. God says, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey, ironically, that you didn't work for, but I blessed you with it. And then what happens to the people of Israel over and over again in the book of Judges? They sin, and then what happens? God punishes them. They lose their freedom. They lose their wealth. Think about Gideon. Gideon is threshing wheat in the wine press, trying to hide from the Midianites. So clearly, he's not enjoying the wealth of the land that God had given to them, and the specific reason in that case was the sin of the people. Um, even in this case, I think Solomon is not necessarily saying it is always a sin issue. Sometimes it's just he observes that here's someone that God gives all these blessings and then something happens and now someone who seemingly should never receive them, receives them. Think about that today. Someone follows God, honors God, has a great deal of wealth or even a uh, enough wealth to satisfy and meet their needs. 
someone calls them up on the phone, says, hey, I'm so-and-so, uh, I'm working on something for your family member, and they need you to send, like, let's say $1,000, $3,000, $5,000, they're in big trouble, they need your help, you've got to help them. Theoretically possible for someone to be well-meaning, but perhaps somewhat um, over-trusting to do that. And then they find out it's a scam. And all the things that they had, or at least a significant portion of what they had, that it was a blessing for them to enjoy, now it's gone, and now someone who's evil, who doesn't deserve it, now has it. That's the sort of scenario that Solomon's describing here. What would your response be? Something's not right with this scenario that's being described. This is vanity, and not just vanity, like insubstantial and breath and puzzling, but it's a severe affliction. Then he comes to verse 3. The man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. And we'll go into that in just a second. So when he says fathers a hundred children and lives many years, do you think he's speaking literally or perhaps exaggerating a bit for the sake of effect? Chapter 6 and verse 3. What do you think? Do you think he's saying if he actually has a hundred children? Or do you think he's saying if he has lots of children, but this doesn't happen, then he'll be miserable? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah for sure. And just as a point of clarification, when we see exaggeration or hyperbole in the Bible, it doesn't mean it's not true. Some people today say, well, there's an error in the Bible because clearly that can't be the case. Well, is that the way that normal people talk? Yes. Is it accurately recording the expressions of daily life? If it says the sun rises and sets, scientifically speaking, that's not technically accurate, but is it true of the way that we describe what happens every day? Yes. And so we can, you know, that's not a reason not to trust the Bible because we see elements of figurative language or, or hyperbole or those sorts of things. So what's he saying? He's saying, here's somebody who has lots of kids and long life. So the first one was, lots of wealth, someone else enjoys it. This one is, lots of kids and long life, but his soul is not satisfied with good things. He doesn't enjoy uh, the blessings of what God has given to him and does not have a proper burial. Solomon says this is an evil thing. Why would it be significant or ironic or perplexing that he would have lots of kids and a long life and yet not have a proper burial? What's that? Possibly, but I think Solomon is even saying this could be someone who's a good Israelite. Because I think the first one is an example of someone who's a good Israelite. Uh, he's going to say later in the book that there are cases in which it happens according to the righteous as it does according to the evil. And we don't understand why the world is that way sometimes. And it's perplexing and it's confusing as it causes us to question the way that God's working in the world. So in this case, 
Why would it be strange that he would not have a proper burial? Okay. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you would think if there's 100, even if there's 20, at least one of them would have a good relationship with him and care for him, sure. Um, and with the idea of his soul not being satisfied with good things, theoretically, I think Solomon is saying he could have family and long life and not see either of those things as the blessing that they are. Is it possible for us to have family and God has blessed us with a reasonably long life and not to realize the blessing that that is? Yeah. I mean, it is possible for us to take many of the daily blessings of God for granted. You can speak. You can see. You can run. You can get up without a, an unreasonable amount of pain. You can see your family. You can... The list goes on. These are things that are, for the most part, normal things that happen in our life, but we don't always recognize them as the blessings that they are. And Solomon is saying, if you have lots of kids and live many years, but you don't enjoy that life, and no one remembers you when you're gone, then humanly speaking, or at least in terms of a just an observational which is better, which is worse. Better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility, goes in obscurity, its name is covered in obscurity, it never sees the sun and knows anything, it is better off than he. Solomon's not saying that miscarriage is a good thing. And obviously, if any of you have ever gone through that, it's a heartbreaking and difficult situation. What Solomon is saying is, if you're going to come to the end of your life, and it's as though you'd never lived, it's almost better as if you had never lived. Which is kind of the same point that he made in chapter 4, right? Chapter 4 and verse 2, I congratulate the dead who have already died more than the living who are still living. Better off than both of them is the one who had never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. There are situations that people are in that are so evil and so difficult and so seemingly inexplicable but if you just looked at him and said, which would be better, for you to go through this or for you to have never been born? Solomon's saying, the natural conclusion would be to say it would have been better if you'd never been born. And to get to that point, you have to say, how terrible of a circumstance would that be? Solomon, I think, is sort of continuing that idea from chapter 4. Verse 6, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice, and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. Even if you live 2,000 years, again, Solomon's not saying that you would, but he's saying if you could. What's true that we see in the book of Genesis, turn back there if you would, book of Genesis, chapter 5, Verse 5. Someone want to read that? Verse 8. Well, 
Verse 11. And that repeats in verse 14, verse 17, verse 20. Verse 24 is the exception. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lives 969 years and he still dies. Lamech, 777, and he dies. You think the author of Genesis is making a point for us? What's happened in chapter 3? Dying you will die. Chapter 5, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Remember how we talked about Ecclesiastes' wisdom literature, picks up on creation themes. Solomon is reminding us of that. You could be Methuselah twice over, death will still catch up to you. And when it says, do not all go to one place, again, this sort of raises the question for us, was the concept of the Israelites that um, the outcome or the fate of the righteous was the same as that of the wicked. I don't think that we can say that absolutely, but there is very clearly a sense in which there's a recognition that whether you are rich, poor, wise, foolish, death catches up all of us. So, we come to verse 7. We're just going to let that tension sit there. We'll leave it in a minute, but let's come to verse 7. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. So, we talked last week about the fact that if you love money, you will not be satisfied, because what do you always want more of? More money. If you have hunger today, you had lunch, what's going to happen in 20 minutes, or maybe happen 20 minutes ago, depending on who you are? You're hungry, okay? What about tomorrow? It's going to happen again. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. You will be hungry. Our appetite is never satisfied. It is temporarily appeased, but it is never satisfied. That's true of pretty much any appetite that we can think of. The one that Solomon picks is the idea of food. And at one level, why do we work? What does Thessalonians say? man doesn't work, what should he not do? So if we do work, why do we work? So that we can eat, you know? Or think about what it says in Proverbs 6. Go look at the ant. Why does the ant work hard? So that when there's no food out there, there's food stored away so the ant can eat. So there's a very real sense in which the work that we do day after day after day that we pour our lives into, that wears us out, that takes a toll on our bodies and our minds and everything else, boils down to, I work so that I don't starve. And Solomon says, but we're not satisfied. Just like pursuing money doesn't satisfy us, pursuing basic necessities of life doesn't satisfy us. And now he's going to ask this question, verse 8, for what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What's the answer? Okay, yeah, without God, nothing. What happens to the wise man and the fool both? They both die. Do they both have to work for their food? Yeah, to some extent. They have to do something to provide for themselves. Do they both potentially pursue money and discover that they need more of it? Yeah. What about the next question? What advantage does the poor man have knowing to walk before the living? 
I think he's saying that the poor man perhaps has a keener awareness of how he has to live because his needs are not always met. But does he have an advantage over the rich man, even though he has perhaps a better perspective on some of the ways that life works? Does he have an advantage in terms of escaping the basic needs of life or escaping his ultimate fate? No. So what's Solomon saying? Solomon's saying, you think that having everything will solve your problem? You may not get to enjoy it. You think that living a long life is the goal to have. You may not have anybody at all that cares about you at the end of that long life. You think that having lots of children is a good outcome. Again, what if, what if they turn out to be like my son, Rehoboam? He doesn't say that specifically, but I think we can at least imply it, if not because it was in his mind, because of what we see coming later. If you work, and you work, and you work, and you eat, and you eat, and you eat, there's got to be more to life than that, right? Right? And sometimes we are content to just do the things that we have to do day after day, and we don't stop and ponder these questions. We don't think about them carefully. But we should think about them. Because if our answers to these questions are the same answers to these questions that someone without God would give, what's the difference between us and them? There's something that needs to be fixed in our perspective, right? Verse 9. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after wind. Um, he says something similar to this in ver uh, chapter 11 and verse 9. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. But here I think, though there's somewhat of a parallel that phrase in chapter 11, I think his emphasis is more, you know, the phrase that can end up getting tiresome. The grass is greener on the other side. My eyes were bigger than my stomach. You know, those sorts of phrases, right? I thought this would be better because I wanted something to fill this emptiness inside of me, and so I pursued this thing over there, and I got there, and I realized what I thought I was going to get doesn't satisfy, and what I thought was going to happen doesn't make me happy. So, what do people live for? Money? keeping what you've got, a long life, lots of kids, good memories, all of those sorts of things. I mean, that sums up pretty much the major motives for life for most of the people you'll meet in an average week, including ourselves sometimes. Solomon says those are empty and futile goals. They don't satisfy. They often come out with an evil end. So look back to what he said at the end of chapter 5, is good. 
eat, drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor. Well, how does that fit with all your labor is for your mouth and it's not satisfied? When you recognize that the fact that you have opportunity to eat is a blessing from God, food is a gift of God, enjoy it, thank Him for it, and, and look at it from that perspective. To enjoy oneself in all one's labor. To realize that even though day in and day out work seems like perhaps pointless toil or repetitious or maybe not always the thing I want to be doing, that we can work in a way that honors God. Realize that the things that you have, if you have them and you have opportunity to enjoy them, don't waste that opportunity. Because it's possible for me to always be chasing after more it's possible for me to be hanging on tightly to what I have. It's possible for me to be so focused on the next thing that I don't look right in front of my eyes and say, what has God blessed me with right now? Yes? The way I've heard that explained is better to want what I have have what I Sure. Well, there was another preacher in chapel one time, and he... Uh, he, I don't know if he copied this from some commentary or came up with himself. He talks about the times when God gave the Israelites what they wanted. They got what they wanted and it wasn't good for them, something along those lines. Yeah. Jesus said it this way. He said, even when one has an abundance, your life does not consist in your possessions. That very much fits with the sentiment of what Solomon is saying here. So if you are in a place where you can eat and drink and work and rest and spend time with your family and have enough to meet your needs and God helps you to enjoy them, what more can you ask for, humanly speaking? You will not be happier if you have more money. You will not be happier if you live an extra five to ten years beyond what God has purposed for you to live. You will not be happier if you have three more kids or six more kids or one more kid than God chooses to give to you. You will not be happier if you have the ability to enjoy all of this kind of food versus all of this kind of food. Solomon's not saying ambition is wrong. Solomon's not saying we should never have goals. But he's saying... So many times we're chasing after the wrong things, thinking that it will satisfy us and give us happiness, and it won't. So, what then should we do? Enjoy the life that God has given to us. Love the family that God has given to us. Make wise use of the resources that God has given to us. And as the conclusion he keeps driving to, and he said... Uh, in chapter 5 and he's going to say again in chapter 12 Dear God this is your whole duty you can do all these things and forget God and what's the point at that point or you can fear God recognize that life is fleeting the things that you have your house your car your clothes will wear out and break. 
Does it mean you can't have a favorite shirt now, or like driving in your car, or enjoy the way that you have your house set up? You recognize it as a temporal blessing. It's for right now. It's not for eternity, it's for right now. So you don't say, this is so important up here, but you don't say it's worthless either. You have a proper, balanced biblical perspective on all of those things. When it comes to relationships with people, you don't look to people to make you happy because they can't do what only God can do, bring you true joy. But as you rightly relate to God and the people around you together, you can find joy in God with each other. What about verses 10 through 12? Verses 10 through 12 are kind of an introduction to the next section. But I think they're good questions for us to ponder this week, to think about, to ask ourselves these questions. Whatever exists has already been named. It is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. That's a confusing verse. What passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 does verse 10 of chapter 6 remind us of? Look down through Ecclesiastes 1. See if there's a verse that's a, that seems to say the same idea as Ecclesiastes 6 verse 10. Verse 10. Probably also verse 9. That which has been is which will be. That which has been done is that which will be done, so there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See, this is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. So Solomon repeats that same sort of idea in chapter 6 and verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named. It is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. Who do you think the he who is stronger than he is probably is? Probably God. God has said, this is what people are like. We can't say, no, people are actually like this instead. We can't dispute with the one who's stronger than we are. The point I think that Solomon is driving at is, where do we need to seek the answers to these questions? From God. We can't come up with the answers on our own. Verse 11, for there are many words which increase futility. A lot of people speculate on why is something a certain way or what is the outcome going to be. And you can talk and talk and talk about those things. God's kind of already given us the answer in the Bible, right? Along those lines, he's going to say at the end of chapter 12, he's going to say the making of many books is without end and wearisome and all those sorts of things. Is it bad to have books? No. Is it bad to read books? No. If you have a choice between what God said and what somebody said in a book, it's funny, but generally God said it a lot more concisely than we tend to say it in books. Again, they can be helpful resources, they can be good, um, but what God said takes priority 
And what God said sometimes ends up clearer than our attempt to say the same thing in a different way. Along those lines, here's his question. What is the advantage to a man? So he said in verse 8, what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have? Uh, he's talked about this idea earlier in the book. Um, let's see here. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 22, what does a man get in all his labor? Who knows whether someone will be a wise man or a fool? Verse 14 of chapter 2, The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet one fate beholds them both. The same sort of idea, not quite so clearly as that. It comes down to what advantage is there? Or chapter 3, verse 19, As one dies man, animal, so does the other. They all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast. So how do I know what's good for me? How do I know what is advantageous in my life? That's the first question. The second question, verse 2, who knows what is a good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life, he will spend them like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? What's good for me, what's going to happen next? I like the way that this, uh, this particular commentator said it in this uh, commentary on Ecclesiastes that I've been reading. I'm going to pull it up here and read it for you. Hopefully, there it is. While there are three questions here, thematically there are only two. The first question asks the same questions in two different ways. The more vanity parallels the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow, and what is the advantage to man parallels who knows what is good for man while he lives. This first question can be summarized as who knows what is good for us, and the second who can tell what will happen to us. To both questions, we can add the phrase, during our brief earthly life, or vain life, or under the sun. And the answers to these questions are found in chapter 7. And that's where we'll look next week. But, those two questions, who knows what is good for us? Who can tell what will happen to us? Good questions for us to think about, right? Okay. So we'll think about that as we look forward and anticipate next week. But to sum up this week, we have the downward progression of what last week was an upward progression, right? This is unsatisfying. This is evil. Here's what's good. This is evil. This is unsatisfying. Conclusion? You don't have an advantage because you're wise. You don't have an advantage because you have a better perspective on life. All of us have the same desires. All of us have the same fate, generally speaking. All of us have the same things that we often live for and pursue. 
What are you living for? Do you enjoy life with a proper Godward perspective? Or do you live like life like everybody around you, just doing it because you do it, not thinking about it, not doing it for the right reasons, not seeing it as a blessing from God, not seeing that it's a limited resource? We need to think about what God has given to us. And as we look toward next week, who knows what's good for us? Who can tell what will happen to us? God has the answer to those questions, and we'll look at that more next week. Any, uh, any additional thoughts on this passage before we close? Yes. I don't I didn't hear the first part of what you said clearly, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. And so um, I think we'll see some of that in the first part of chapter seven, for sure. But Solomon also says there is a good in enjoying the temporal blessings of God with a proper perspective, and I think that's the main focus that we see in chapter five and chapter six. Any other thoughts? All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, as we looked at this passage tonight, it can be discouraging to see that many of the things that we hold dear, that we pour lots of time into, that we think are most important, will not fix life for us are unworthy objects for us to live for and will not necessarily bring us the happiness and joy that we hope to find from them. But as Solomon goes along and kicks out all the supports for an ungodly way of looking at life, by tearing down those things, hopefully we are able to see better the and more clearly how to live a life that's pleasing to you. Don't love temporary things, but enjoy them as gifts of God for the time that they have value. Don't seek to find satisfaction where no satisfaction can be found. Instead, live life in a way that honors God and receives blessings from His hand and seeks to uh, be pleasing to Him in all that we say and do. Lord, help us to have these truths sink down in our lives. We don't like to hear things that are discouraging, but sometimes the sobering realities of the way that You've made the world to work are what we need to hear. Obviously, there is hope to be found in Christ. There is hope to be found in a relationship with you, which is the point that Solomon is driving at. But sometimes our, our desire to reach that goal and the hope that's found there causes us to sort of skip over the tension, the frustration, the even discouragement that reading some of these passages can produce. The Lord, help us to read them and consider them and think about them 
that we would not love things and not exalt people or anything else to your place, but to see all of ourselves properly related to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.